is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? This is Box 39 with Bill Lawrence and Adrian Cohen. Yes, hello and welcome to Box 39 with me, Bill Lawrence. And on this show tonight, we bring you the Box 39 Mystery Machine. So, to put quite simply, this is our attempt live here on the radio to solve some of the greatest mysteries that have eluded answer and defeated explanation. But with the aid of modern technology and by harnessing the power of you, our listeners around Wivenhoe, North East Essex and even beyond, we hope to confront and challenge traditional belief and knowledge and to definitely, definitely solve all of those mysteries that history itself has defined as being too mysterious for even really, really well-read clever dicks to fully understand. Yes, that's right. We aim to fully and finally bring you real answers and and to spit quite loudly in the large staring eyeballs of doubt. It is, after all, what you deserve and what we get quite hefty fees for. What's in the box? What's in the box? So on Box 39 tonight, we're putting aside all our usual features. We've opened up the 11th floor here at Colm Radio Towers to support our mystery machine. We've got additional phone lines and a dedicated server that's been brought in, and it now just requires you, the Box 39 family, to help us. So please phone in, text or email. Our live house band, Ausgang Exit, have been taken off their musical duties, and they're up there on the 11th floor with Adrian too, waiting to hear from you, along with a number of celebrity influencers and even historians. So make sure you let us know your ideas as we go through the show. And coordinating all of this is my colleague Adrian. He's usually found on the Box 39 musical library down below us, but for tonight, he's live in what we are calling the Cone Radio World History Monitoring Complex on the 11th floor here at the Towers and looking out over the full and fertile lands of North East Essex. He is at the very beating heart of the Box 39 Mystery Machine. Hello there, Bill. Yes, it's Aid here in the Cone Radio World History Monitoring Complex on the 11th floor of Cone Radio Towers. This fabulous room, modelled on an aircraft carrier bridge, has a 360-degree panoramic view. We're all very excited here as there is a very real prospect that with the assistance of your listeners, we are going to be able to solve six enduring historical mysteries during this show. Indeed, I have the six lined up for you and we're all set to go. That's all from me, Aid, here in the CRWHMC on the 11th floor. Back to you, Bill, in Studio One. Thanks, Adrian. And uh, we've already received our first text from none other than Lord David Price himself, the CEO of Global Radio Retail Digital, and who says, I'm listening here from my tax-free haven here in the Cayman Islands. Good luck to all of you at the Box 39 Mystery Machine tonight as you make history. There is fame, fortune and great power to be had, says Lord David, if by unblocking these secrets you can create sufficient publicity and attendant additional revenue. But, he says, with these liberties comes the responsibility of truth, which can be, to be quite frank, it can get in the way of a good party. Much love, Lord David. Well, what a wonderful start to the show. So, we'll be starting the Box 39 Mystery Machine right now, and we'll be back to it after this, our first piece of music, which is from Los Lobos, and is called Bluebird.
Okay, thank you, Bill. Here's the first historical mystery. We're calling it The Devil's Footprints. Early on the morning of 9th of February 1855, people in towns across northeast Essex awoke to find a single line of hoof-like marks in the deep snow, as if they had been branded with a hot iron. The Times newspaper said the marks were found over a distance of 40 miles on both sides of the River Cone, as if, and I quote, some strange and mysterious animal endowed with the power of ubiquity had created them during the night. Explanations ranged from an escaped kangaroo, badgers and mice to a balloon trailing a horseshoe-shaped appling rope. Superstitious people preferred to believe that they were the work of the devil himself. In its summary of the popular theories at the time, a writer in the Illustrated London News said no satisfactory solution had been found and no known animal could have traversed this extent of country in one night. Neither does any known animal walk in the line of single footsteps, not even a man. Let's hope that you and your listeners, Bill, can solve this problem for us. And now I'm handing back to you there in Studio One. Excellent. Thanks very much, Adrian. That's uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? What, what really were these devil's footprints? And, and why did they appear on that cold Essex early morning never to appear again? Now, listeners, we will be following strict, and I mean strict, empirical and uh, verifiable principles. We're going to be treating each mystery rather like a, a jigsaw puzzle, I suppose. And each piece of the jigsaw is, is like a sort of discrete piece of proven evidence. We're going to be employing the full range of investigative skills of, of the historian. We'll put forward our hypotheses, we'll argue points with one another with care and with discretion, we'll use logical deduction, we'll uh, assess the evidence, and then we'll draw proper, full, and very accurate conclusions. So come on, listeners, let's see if we can solve this puzzle that's lain unsolved for over 165 years. Let's fire up the mystery machine, and we'll be right back after this music from This Is The Kit with Found Out. Beautiful and wonderful and a pleasure and with very sexy music. 
Oh, yes, this is Box 39 with our mystery machine with me, Bill Lawrence, and with Adrian Cohen. So Adrian has delivered our first mystery. Uh, 40 miles of strange animal footprints found in snow early one morning in 1855, 40 miles across northeast Essex, and investigations at the time were inconclusive. Marks of an animal? Or as legend finally decrees, the marks of the devil himself? Well, you haven't let us down. Already we're receiving a steady stream of theories into our mystery machine, nerve centre up there on the 11th floor and uh, we've already had some suggestions we can eliminate um, these footprints as coming from an animal I think because Rachel Shin from Alsford has texted in to say it's likely that in 1855 all kangaroos lived in Australia Surely zoos weren't thought of until after the Second World War, she says, uh, apart from in the Bible, perhaps. And Barney Hoops from St Albans, he's on Facebook, and he says 40 miles is actually further than any native East Anglian animal can travel in one night. He says he once rode a horse from Harwich to Stansted Airport for a bet, and that took three days. But he thinks he could have done it in two, but he got a bit lost around Dunmo. Um, So... Let's now then look at the theory of whether these footprints were the work of the devil. Uh, what have we got? Who have we got? We've got Martine Devonshire from Churchill Farm near Stone Market. And she said, um, she points out that while many people at the time feared the devil and believed he might appear in order to cause mischief and mayhem, she's read on Wikipedia that there are actually far fewer appearances by the devil in the 19th century that might be believed. Oh, Martin. Martin says this is due to an effect called the Jeffrey Ridley effect. So Jeffrey Ridley, she says, was a historian at Cambridge University in the 1880s. He wrote 26 volumes about manifestations of the devil, such as these recorded across England in stories and pamphlets and songs. And it's now recognised that he made up over 90% of these, causing devil hysteria and a propensity, says Martin, for people to lie to him even further in order to achieve notoriety and a small cash fee. So I think we've now eliminated the explanation that these were, in fact, devil's footprints. Uh, Two more listeners have texted him with the same name. Now, that suggests a strong degree of firm evidence, doesn't it? Mark Roast from Alton Water in Suffolk, Malcolm from Chelmsford and Peter Staines from East Bergholt have all mentioned the Victorian playwright Jonathan Plum. Uh, You may be the one famous for his practical jokes and fabulous stories. I'm sure you've all heard of uh, the gingerbread man who lived in Tower Bridge and uh, what else did he do? The three-legged dog who sang lullabies to Queen Victoria and the boat that sailed backwards from Tilbury to Bombay. Anyway, Adrian on the 11th floor has confirmed that census records show that a J. Plum living in Wivenhoe in 1851 and uh, we've cross-referenced that with our historical maps show Wivenhoe's pretty much in the middle of the area in which these footprints were said to have been. Uh, Finally, uh, we've looked on the microfiche available from the Colchester Standard and Claxton Gazette and that's an issue in February 1855. It's an article about these devil footprints written by the reporter Jonathan Lump. Lump, which is of course an anagram of Jonathan Plum. So there we are. Case solved. The devil's footprints were really just a Victorian hoax. That's another success for the Box 39 Mystery Machine. And here in the Cone Radio World History Monitoring Complex, it's me, it's Aid, and the next mystery is an absolute doozy. I think everyone's heard of the Shroud of Turin. The piece of linen cloth kept in the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin, northern Italy, is one of the most closely investigated objects in human history, yet it retains its secrets. The sacred relic is believed by many Christians to be the shroud in which Jesus of Nazareth was buried. There is no doubt that it bears a negative imprint of the face and outline of the body of a man who has suffered injuries consistent with crucifixion, but scientists have been unable to reach a consensus about how it was created. Radiocarbon testing by the three laboratories in 1988 dated the cloth to the Middle Ages and this was proclaimed by some as proof it was a medieval fake. But this interpretation remains the subject of intense debate, leading a former editor of Nature, Philip Ball, to declare that the relic remains shrouded in mystery. Let's hope that someone calls in to Box 39 today, before the show ends, and gives us an insight into this mystery, and then solve it once and for all. Back to you, Bill. Oh, 
thank you, Adrian. What a challenge. Another great challenge for the mystery machine. Well, I think we need to focus on our second-order concepts, don't we? They're the ones that shape the key questions we have to ask, which organise our dribble thoughts here about that rather rather silent and insignificant, it appears, piece of Italian cloth. Our focus must be on cause and consequence, change and continuity, on similarity and difference, and, of course, on that really tricky one, significance. Well, I'm pleased to say, delighted to say, the phone lines and inboxes up there on the 11th floor uh, where the mystery machine is are, are literally starting to hum, whir, snivel and ping. And we'll be back to crack the Shroud of Turin after this song from Ondara, which is called Milk and Honey. Oh, milk, oh, honey, feel my cup, feel my cup. Oh, milk, oh, honey, feel my cup, go feel it up. Well, I raised from the the heavy back and the swollen feet then I came upon the sea with a hungry heart and a rolling wheel oh milk oh honey feel my cup feel my cup Thanks, Adrian. This one, you know, on the Shroud of Turin really, really has heated up the phone lines and it's sort of fizzing up the notifications. And I think we're getting somewhere. So, for example, um, Eggsy from, uh, uh, where's Eggsy from? East Hill in Colchester. Uh, and he says, suggested that St. John the Baptist is an important clue. Uh, and it may be no coincidence, he says, there's a significant number of references to St. John across East Anglia. There's St. John's Church and Primary School in the middle of Colchester, St. John's Abbey, of course, Benedictine Monastery here, uh, and he says, of course, even today in the High Street, there's St. John's Fish and Chips and Chicken Takeaway. Now, that certainly covers the change and continuity angle of second-order concepts. Good work, Eggsy, we like it. Johnny Johnson from Jaywick as pursuing this theme as well. He covers another important secondary order investigative skill. That's similarity and difference. Johnny says, looking at the same thing, but from a different direction, is maybe what we need to do. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? He said uh, he tried this with cholesterol when he was diagnosed with obesity in 2018, and it worked. Instead of measuring his cholesterol, he now measures rather and counts those bits that don't have cholesterol, such as his legs and his buttocks. He says it's a glass-half-full approach to life, and you'd be amazed how much better things could be. So, Johnny ends by saying, to this end, why don't we look at the Turin Shroud from underneath? He thinks this provides an important clue. The line that we think shows Jesus' chin you know, that goes up there to his right ear. When you look at it from underneath, it actually shows the coastline running from the medieval port of the Hive in Colchester up the Cole River to, to St. Osith. And then, of course, all the way up to Naser, uh, Walton, where there was a medieval manor house owned by the European cheese merchant Giovanni of Turin. 
Uh, Adrian, on our 11th floor here at Comrade uh, Towers, he's had a reconstruction of this coastline drawn. He's placed it as an overlay on the Shroud of Turin, as seen from underneath. That's the key bit, isn't it? Apart from the river line from Wivenhoe to, Bright, uh, to, to Brightling Sea Marina, it's, it is a really close match. There's, a, there's the bit from Jesus' right nostril up to his right eyebrow there on the Shroud, and I think that covers yet another important investigative concept. So lots of other clues tumbling in to support this. Miley Bacon from Romford says Turin was once twinned with Colchester in early Georgian times, according to a site she's found on the internet. Um, who else? Ruth from Colchester wants us to know there used to be a small port uh, part of Harwich in medieval times called Little Italy, which specialised in both cheese making and map making. Well... Darren from Wickham Market says his favourite cheese is from northern Italy near Turin. It's called Pagliarina, made from cow's milk with a thin natural rind. Well, how about that? And he says um, uh, they make it by maturing the cheese on a bed of straw, which drains and distributes the butter fat through the cheese and also imprints a typical pattern on the rind, which is then wrapped in a thin linen shroud. Which And that linen shroud is known locally in Turin as the Colsestrasti. He goes on to say uh, it's creamy, it's soft, buttery, sweet, aromatic, blah de blah de blah Hints of almonds, recommends with sparkling whites and reds. And he says the wines and cheeses are all available from his online delicatessen. Thank you, Darren. So that's great work. I think very much that the mystery machine has cracked it. The Turin Shroud was probably a cloth with a delivery map printed on it, used to wrap medieval cheese transported to Colchester. Hello, Aid here on the 11th floor. It's about time this enduring mystery is laid to rest. Everyone's heard of Richard III and the Princes in the Tower. In 2012, the skeleton of the last Plantagenet King of England, Richard III, was unearthed from beneath a council car park on the site of Asda Supermarket in Stanway. The dig that unearthed his remains was instigated by Philippa Langley of the Richard III Society as a direct result of a strange feeling she had when visiting the site. This apparent example of psychic archaeology is not the only mystery that surrounds Richard's life and death. His precise role in the fate of the two nephews, popularly known as the Princes in the Tower, remains a subject of enduring mystery. The 12-year-old Edward and his 9-year-old brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, the sons of King Edward IV, were lodged in the Tower of London by their uncle, Richard, at the time of their disappearance in 1483. No one knows exactly what happened to them, but a box containing two small human skeletons was found near the White Tower in the 17th century, and at the time was widely believed to be the remains of the princes. Surely somebody listening to Box 39 can contact you and help you solve this mystery. Let's hope so. Back to you, Bill. Well, come on, everyone. There's a challenge for you. The prince is in the tower. And remember, as our listeners continue to put forward solutions, Adrian and others involved in coordinating the Box 39 Mystery Machine are ensuring that our investigations remain uh, timely and responsible, credible, of course, prompt, very thorough and, and responsive. So above all, they must be conducted in the manner by which findings can stand up to a court of law, if necessary. The hard, pointy sword of truth cannot become the vulnerable twin testicles of speculation and conjecture. Think on that, please, while we listen to the next piece of music from Lorde with Fallen Fruit. To the ones who came before of the golden ones who were lifted on a wing. We had no idea the dreams we had were far too big, far too big, and we will walk. We Slant away the 
Welcome back to 106.6 FM. This is The Mystery Machine uh, with Adrian Cohen on the 11th floor and myself here up on the 4th floor, uh, Bill Lawrence after. And we're getting really a lot of feedback on this one from the Princes in the Tower. Really considerable feedback um, from listeners. Suggestions the mystery may involve psychic archaeology seem to be really gaining traction. Um, so uh, what we got ex-British Army Sergeant at Arms Bobby Skirt from Felix Stowe he's texted in to remind us of the experiments done at Orford Ness at nearby Suffolk coast during the Cold War he said these were experiments on moving objects and deep sea fishing just using the power of the mind and psychic energy so he says he's been plotting the psychic energy ley lines that uh, that, that uh, are around he said they've existed for years and there's an oblique third tier energy line Ooh, there's one of those that travels directly from Orford Ness to Shrewsbury and it passes right through Stanway. Now, Adrian on the floor has verified that. He's drawn the same lines on similar maps, this time using a 3D computerised projection. It does confirm Stanway's indeed in a possibly psychic channel, uh, which may have been used at the time of the death of the princes in the tower. Who else have we got? Uh, we've got ex-British Railways serious crime investigator Ronnie Legg from Stanray writes in to say, this is interesting, he says uh, he was walking home from his brother's wedding reception very late one night on the St Michael's estate there in Stanway and he believes he was stolen by two small aliens who took him into the woods and then quite literally spat him out onto the centre of the A12 exit 28 roundabout at Tollgate after wiping his mind of everything they did to him. And he sent in a sketch... Now, this sketch of what the aliens look like, it is remarkably like two very thin, almost skeletal small boys with what appears to be crowns hovering above their heads. Marvellous work, Ronnie. Now, we've got a Facebook. Uh, this Facebook person is called Don't Listen to the Government 1964. He says he runs an organisation, or she, called Cosmos History for Real Believers. He's been conducting his own research, he says, and he says we shouldn't be searching for the twins in the tower. They should be looking for us. He says he's been to the car park in Stanway. The bodies of the princes may have been discovered. He's done conducted his own unbiased psychic research wearing a lead-lined cone to prevent the government thought destruction rays. I don't know what they are. And his findings presume a type of technological commensurability in which aliens broadcast messages using the same radio telescopes that we have built. Oh, and uh, this is confirmed by Ova... We've, we've received over 50 almost identical emails and texts from other members of the Cosmos History for Real Believers, all confirming the two skeletons found were what was left of the princes in the tower when they'd been taken to another time and place in the cosmos for experiments. And they returned to Stanway apparently because of easy parking in the lay, on the ley lines of universal, universality. Well, we've put all this evidence together and uh, it suggests, doesn't it, that many people in Stanway have survived alien abduction. Many, possibly thousands of you listening who can't remember it because your minds have been wiped. But we are survivors. And it is important to allow survivors of any traumatic incident to tell their story and for us to listen to that story. Um, finally, a message from Happiness Stan from Coggershaw, old friend of the show, and he points out the Princes in the Tower is an anagram of nephew restriction, 
which clearly indicates that they were deliberately kept in some sort of confinement by, a, by an uncle-type alien. And at Stan, Stanway is an ancient Anglo-Saxon word for starway or road to the stars. Great work, listeners. The mystery machine has cracked it. The Princes in the Stower Tower is a story of alien abduction. It's Aid here in the Cone Radio World History Monitoring Complex, and we have a fourth historical mystery ready for solving by you, Bill, and your listeners. We are calling it A Lost Romanov Princess. After Tsar Nicholas II of Russia abdicated the throne on March the 15th, 1917, he and his family, his wife Alexandra, son Alexis, and four daughters, Olga, Tatiana, Maria, and Anastasia, were taken captive and eventually moved to a house in the Ural Mountains. In the cellar, they and four of their servants were executed by a Bolshevik firing squad on July the 17th, 1918. However, no bodies were immediately found. Even the executioner's later accounts were so muddled as to invite speculation. After the shootings, however, rumours surfaced that the Tsar's youngest daughter, Grand Duchess Anastasia, may have escaped. Several women later came forward claiming her identity, most famously Anna Anderson, on whom the 1956 film Anastasia was based. Escape seemed possible when the bodies of only three of the four daughters were discovered in a mass grave in 1991. Even today, theories as to Anastasia's fate persist. You're a professional historian, Bill. Maybe some of your listeners have seen something or heard something which would enable you to solve this mystery before the end of this show. Let's hope so. Back to you, Bill. Yeah, thanks, Aid. Let's hope we solve this one. The Lost Romanov Princess. Just uh, to point out that Donna from Norwich has uh, rung in and she said uh, intuition can be a fundamental cognitive process that allows us to make quick but accurate decisions. Donna adds that when we face a problem, our brain unconsciously analyzes our experience and suggests a solution by sending high or low frequency nerve impulses which make us feel stressed or relaxed. Donna says that when she has no facts available, she uses intuition. However, intuition doesn't provide her with a solution, but it only indicates where to search for the solution. She then takes a leap of faith, writes it all down, and makes a very well-supported guess, which usually gets a very high level of likes on her Facebook page. Well, let's try to use Donna's intuition to this mystery as we listen to our next piece of music, which is from the Duar Trio, and it's called Mango. My name is Frank Nublé and you're listening to Box 39 on Clone, Clone, Radio, Clone, Radio 106.6 FM. Well, yeah, I got a bit lost listening to that music. It just took me back to a holiday I once had in Margate. 
Anyway, uh, a very complicated mystery, this one. You're listening to The Mystery Machine. We're going to solve this, you know, a lost Romanov princess. So it's a Russian Revolution, Tsar's family, uh, Ural Mountains, executions, no bodies, uh, muddle accounts, daughter Anastasia escape. Where is she? It really seems to have stumped listeners out there, this one. It actually seems a bit complicated to me. But I am reminded of Donna's words we just heard there. We, maybe we should trust our intuition. Maybe we shouldn't just rely on facts and evidence. Maybe we should be making cleverer guesses, simple jumps, leaps of faith to solve this mystery. So let's start with a thought that I've had about this one. Now, I don't know much about the Russian Revolution or the Tsarist family. I do know that he was replaced eventually after a few months by a new leader called Vladimir Lenin. And it's highly likely that he he would have known the answer to the mystery, wouldn't he? Because... He was not only very clever, but he also ruled Russia in a, in, a, in a highly communist manner. So maybe the answer lies in his hands. Those are my thoughts. Um, Pauline from Klingo Hill here in Colchester, she's texted to say she's always been fascinated by this area of history. So much so that a few years ago she had regression therapy to see if she'd lived a previous life. And under hypnosis, she had spoken some sort of old-fashioned Russian and felt she was one of a group of guards who had guarded the Romanov family during their last few days and hours of their lives. So she had a second session of regression, says Pauline, and she drew a picture of the last night of the Romanovs Anastasia wasn't in it, but written above the fireplace was included the word Lenin. Well, uh, my gut intuition there seems to suggest that Anastasia has either escaped or was already dead. And most importantly, I was right. Lenin definitely is in this mystery. There's real progress, I think. Keep those calls coming in. Uh, we've got Brooke from Old Manor Farm in Dis. She's texting to say she went to St. Petersburg about 20 years ago on a school trip and there's a statue of Lenin at the railway station there. Uh, no coincidence, surely. Bill Morley from Wivenhoe says, Lenin's preserved bodies on display in Moscow, uh, and it's probably because people wanted to look at him to take their attention away from the Romanovs and Anastasia. Now, that's a great th- theory. You know, my, prum- my thumbs, they're really pricking now. I think we've successfully shown how intuition can guide us to where the answers might lie. And that's intuition is clearly saying Lenin. So as far as I'm concerned, we've pretty much solved this puzzle of the lost Romanov princess. It's just a question of historians now doing some legwork, looking properly at Lenin to find any of those small details needed. Lenin is the answer. Well done, Box 30. Well done. I'm I'm delighted that this confirms that broadening our net, considering those elements that don't necessarily seem obvious, that's the way our mystery machine rolls. Hello there, Bill. Here is our fifth unsolved historical mystery, and I have a good feeling about this one. Someone out there listening to this is going to contact you and help you answer the question, what happened to Amelia Earhart? In 1937, Amelia Earhart, born in 1903 in Wivenhoe, and one of the world's most famous aviators, apparently disappeared without trace during an attempt to circumnavigate the globe. Though searches began only an hour after Earhart's last recorded message, nothing was ever found, and her fate remains one of the greatest historical mysteries of all time. Or does it? In fact, a woman's body was located in Gardner Island, part of the Phoenix Islands, Kiribati, in the Western Pacific Ocean, in 1940. With it were a campfire, a navigational sextant, and the remains of shoes. The body was later judged to be that of a white female of Northern European descent, around Earhart's height. Expeditions carried out since 2001 have found other evidence suggesting the presence of an American woman alive in the 1930s, It's possible that Earhart lived as a castaway after an emergency landing. Now, can somebody listening to the show contact Bill by text, email or by phone if they have any information, anything at all, to help us solve this famous mystery? Come on, it's a kind of people power. If we pool our thoughts, we can get the answer. Back to you, Bill. Oh, thanks, Adrian. Amelia Earhart, then. What a mystery. What a mystery. Uh, Amelia Earhart's last confirmed words, spoken at 8.43 a.m. on July the 2nd, 1937. She said, we are on the line, 157337. We're flying north and south. 
and earlier she's spoken the fatal words, we are on you, but cannot see you. She was in trouble, and she knew it. Oh, there are just shivers running up and down my legs. So let's get your ideas flowing into the 11th floor. Let's get the mystery machine on this one, okay? Let's solve it. This long-lasting mystery that has baffled people for so long. Whatever happened to Amelia Earhart? After this music, which is plus 81 from Deer Hoof. Send your ideas in. They're absolutely pouring in to the Colm Radio World History Monitoring Complex up there on the 11th floor. I'm Bill Lawrence and I'm with Adrian Cohen who's up there taking uh, your information and we are solving mysteries. And what a mystery this one is. Mystery number five and the mystery of Amelia Earhart. Um, Kaz1977 says she watched a film once uh, called Flight to Freedom which showed Earhart as working secretly for the US Navy uh, as a bit of a spy. Well, that's interesting. Um, what else have we got? Uh, we've got Conspiracy Cave UK on Facebook. Say there's an excellent program on Netflix they watched a few years ago, or it could possibly have been Amazon Prime. Starred Madonna as Earhart and Russell Brand as her navigator, George Noonan, who also disappears. And she says this film was as good as a documentary can get. It seemed very plausible, and it suggested that Earhart was captured by a Western Samoan drugs cartel, forced to live there as a to- as Tokyo Rose, a plumber by day and a nightclub singer by night. That's interesting. Dave from Stanway's texted. He says, surely her name should be pronounced Earhart, not Earhart. And he says, details like this are important. Yeah, you're right, Dave. Dave, another Dave, Dave the Doorman from Clacton. Uh, he says he saw a short video on Facebook recently which put forward the theory that Earhart or Earhart met Jesus in her cockpit just as she was flying over Gardner Island. And so she immediately moved to Trenton, New Jersey, became a housewife and occasional beekeeper. Uh, Michael J from Fox Lake near Manningtree says, surely her name should be pronounced Amelia, not Amelia. 
And he says specifics like this should be properly documented. You're you're absolutely right, Michael. Uh, several listeners have heard they say aliens captured Earhart, Earhart, including Nardeep Pegg from Leia Nayland, says he wouldn't be surprised at all by this, and it's only a matter of time before more famous people are abducted. That's a, a really good point there. Uh, Samantha from South Ipswich says she remembers an old episode of QI that suggested that Earhart, Earhart crashed in the ocean, and she says that's not an unsurprising fate, is it, considering the notorious unreliability of the two air-cooled supercharged 1,000 343.804 cubic inch displacement 22.021 litre Pratt and Whitney Wasp S3H1 nine cylinder radial engines with their compression ratio. She says of just a poultry six to one. Yeah, Mickey Mann from Melbourne Park in Chelmsford says her middle name was Mary, which could have been pronounced Marie or Maria or even, he says, Maisie. He says, unless we start getting these basics right, we start being consistently accurate and precise, then we're just wasting our time. Well, you know, you may think these are harsh words. You may rather tough to hear, but we seek the truth. And that lies within the parameters of proper evidential analysis. So we've got to drill right down into the start, start of any investigation. We've got to get the names right. The names are the key. Otherwise, all the work we do, you know, it's just supposition, isn't it? The presumption, the inference, it amounts to nothing. Zero. And that's the truth. There we are. Another secret uncovered by the Box 39 Mystery Machine. Hello, Bill. Everyone's heard of the Salem Witch Trials, but an even bigger mystery in the late 17th century was the true events behind the Stanway Witch Trials. The trials of supposed witches in the English village of Stanway during 1692 have given rise to one of history's biggest misconceptions. Though it is popularly believed that those found guilty were burned to death, this method of execution was never actually used. In total, 19 men and women were convicted of witchcraft, while hundreds of others were accused. The guilty were all hanged, while one man was crushed to death for refusing to be tried. Now, the question is, and it's the final mystery, is what was this bewitchment of young women which sparked the initial hysteria and arrests? This is the last one I have for you today. Fingers crossed, Bill, that you and your listeners can come up with the answers. We've done really well so far on the show. Come on, listeners. Someone out there has a crucial fact or a theory to help Box 39 to solve this mystery. I just know it. Back to you, Bill. Yeah, Aid, you're right. Absolutely. We've got someone out there, I'm sure. Uh, it's, you know, it's well documented, isn't it? All the greatest of greatest detectives can think outside of the box and they're not limited by common knowledge or experience. They can just, they can they come up with ideas that common people like you out there uh, can never dream of. They're not afraid to think in unexpected and less than sensible ways. That's what we've got to do. It's imagination as well as just your pure intelligence. So come on then, let's get keep up the good work with this final mystery. Keep contacting us with your ideas as we listen to William Fitzsimmons and Dancing on the Sun. Dancing on the sun A million stars were in your eyes And I fell for you so high Think I love you Thank you. 
wonderful piece of music. My goodness, we've got so much to get through and so little time to do it. Absolutely uh, doing us proud with this one on the Stanway Witch Trials of 1692. Robin with a Y. Robin from Chelmsford, Texas, in, say a good detective can't easily get information by being completely honest, does so by making lies. Um, and, and, and ironically, some of the greatest detectives like criminals are good liars. It's very true. That's quite a breakthrough, I think, there. Mango Dread from Shrubend says in 1692, that was just one year after 1691, which was in itself just three years after 1688. And he says that was the year of the glorious revolution in England when the Catholic King James II was replaced by his Protestant daughter Mary and her Dutch husband. Is that a coincidence? Or a clue, he says. Marnie Flood from the Hythe in Colchester says, uh, parish records show in the Dutch quarter of Stanway an explosion in 1688 of new Dutch-related businesses, mainly cheese and windmill design related, but also including casual racism and racial stereotyping. Shane Bell from Harwich says he's got a Dutch wife. Lucas Pound from Lexton in Colchester says he's always supported the Netherlands in the World Cup. Uh, Pink Balloons 1982 says as a child, she believe that windmills were powered by the thoughts of unicorns. Now, our researchers up there on the 11th floor with Adrian have uncovered evidence that harsher anti-Dutch racism bylaws were passed in 1692. A commissioner was appointed in Stanway to ensure only mild or average levels of Dutch awareness. And his name was Hex, which is spelled H-E-K-S, which he says, uh, which apparently is the Dutch for which. Ron and Reggie from Brightlings, he texted in, say their mum used to talk about a festival in the Dutch quarter of Stanway. Would have been around 1692, and she kept a newspaper cutting of it in her pipe tobacco tin. Uh, Kevin Hatt from the Dutch quarter in Stanway. Um, he has said uh, when he decorated his small upstairs bedroom, he stripped off the wallpaper and written in crayon on the plaster underneath was a message, which, which is which? Ask too many questions and ye body will grow ye terrible pains and ye soul will be damned. Signed, Hex. Oh, uh, oh. Well, Kevin, thank you for that, but it's just actually slightly spooked me. I I will be honest with you. I'm not someone easily deflected from a challenge, but that's quite a scary threat, actually. And um, to be quite honest, I'm not really sure if we should carry on. Um, uh, can we get HR to check if we got some sort of insurance against the devil or uh, a comrade? We don't really need to uncover this, so it's just not relevant. And that's the truth. Well done to everyone. Another victory for the Box 39 Mystery Machine. Coming soon on Cone Radio. Box 39 investigates... That's right, the Box 39 Investigates team, listening very careful as they always do, noticed the sound of a bus passing the house where someone was taping Brian Kant's voice at the beginning of an episode of Camblewick Green off an old VHS video before posting it to YouTube from which Guppy Productions ripped the audio for the Box 39 opening theme tune. With the aid of CCTV footage, bus timetables and a London A to Z, we have tracked down someone who was on that bus and we've interviewed them exclusively, coming soon to Cone Radio, like we said. So this has been Box 39, The Mystery Machine, with me, Bill Lawrence, and Adrian Cohen, up there in the Cone Radio World History Monitoring Complex. So perhaps there is one mystery that will never be solved. That is, until the end of time, when it will be solved. And if I'm making no sense, don't worry, I'm not talking nonsense. I'm looking with a common sense at the end of the universe itself. The greatest mystery of all time and space. And this blows my mind. In the past, the deliciously named Big Crunch suggests a scenario in which the universe's expansion, which has been going on since the Big Bang, it tapers off and instead gives way to the forces of gravity. As a result, everything, planets, galaxies, clusters, is all drawn together into a single dense point of mass until everything is wiped out. And so we look forward to that. 
So from up here in Studio One on the fourth floor of Kong Radio Towers, looking out over the full and fertile lands of North East Essex, it's time for us to close Box 39 once more and be seeing you. is a guppy production for Cohen Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. 